65 and 66. We good to go, Miles? We're recording? Good. Happy 40th birthday, Heather Carpenter. Isaiah 65 and 66. All right. Now, we had to uh, stop last week. We weren't able to finish all of Isaiah 65, so we are going to be actually picking up here in verse 8. Real, real quick rewind reminder. Isaiah 63 and 64 dealt with very simple topics. Judgment of sin, God is just, sin has to be judged, then mercy, and then what you have is a wonderful prayer of confession of repentance from Isaiah 63:15 through all of Isaiah 64. And that's where we finished last week, is this idea of God is going to judge, he's going to judge sin, but they confess their sins. And that's where we left off. So what you have here in Isaiah 65 and 66 is God's response to their confession. Now, what is going on here in the book of Isaiah is the nation of Israel is in a really tough time. They're in a state of spiritual sin. The Assyrians are going to come destroy the northern kingdoms. Babylon's going to come take out the southern kingdoms. Israel is going to go into this horrible time. They're going to be destroyed, and it's a really dark time. Well, it's also a bigger picture of everything that's going on in Israel. And God is saying that this idea of sin needs to be taken care of in even general terms, too. It's a fancy term that's called dual prophecy, dual fulfillment. It has a fulfillment for them back then, 3,000 years ago, but also has application for us as we go through this right now. So as we go through the rest of Isaiah 65 and 66, he is talking to Israel of thousands of years ago, saying, this is what I'm going to do. But as you read it, you're going to see the application for us. And a lot of these verses you see here are quoted in the New Testament. Really what you have is this culmination of 66 chapters. Isaiah has a big book. And it ends with this idea of everything being made right and new. So we're going to get into a lot of prophecy tonight at that same point. But what we left off last week was their confession of sin, we have sinned, now what is God's response to that? God's response in verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah 65 is, I still have to judge sin. And that was the point that we talked about last week. God is a just God. Sin just can't be forgotten about. Sin just can't be overlooked. Sin has to be judged. When you sin, that has to be taken care of. When I sin, it has to be taken care of. And that's what Jesus Christ did on the cross, is he took care of the sin. Well, Israel has to be punished for what they did. And it sounds like it's all done. And if you would end in verse 7 of Isaiah 65, what a downer of an ending. Israel's going to be judged. But verse 8, everything turns around. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. For will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all? See, what he's saying is, he remember, he used this analogy last week of the wine press. And so all these grapes are being thrown in this, and God is stopping them in judgment. That's the analogy. But what he says in verse 8 is, I'm going to take one cluster of grapes out, and I'm not going to crush them. That one cluster that he brings out is redeemed Israel. Now, according here to Isaiah's time, what God is saying is, yes, the Assyrians are destroying you. Yes, the Babylonians are destroying you. But you know what? There's going to be a remnant that comes out of this. And that remnant that comes out will come back and they'll rebuild the temple. They'll reset this up. And that all happened under Zechariah. And you can read about that. It's a great book. But there's also a double meaning here. Right now, spiritually speaking, Israel looks like they're trampled and destroyed. God says, no, i got a remnant i got a remnant I'm working with here. One cluster of grapes I'm still working with. And that's what he's going to talk about. But for him to work with this, 
they have to make a choice. Jump down, if you will, because we don't have time to hit every single verse. Jump down, if you will, to verse 13 of Isaiah 65. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of the heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. He who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, because they are hidden from my eyes. Now, the problem is with God sometimes is we make extremes. God is not the angry man that lives upstairs, that hates you, and just wants to crush you. But at the same time, too, God is not the God that just says, oh, that's okay, I can just let that go because I just love you. He does love you. But he also says, look at verse 15. (laughs) You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you. Now, that's kind of hard to water down that verse. God hates sin. And what he's telling Israel is, if you reject me, and you reject me as God, you will be destroyed. Now, that's usually not the type of teaching that grows churches, but that's the truth. And the same thing happens today, is if you reject Jesus Christ, God says you're going to be judged. That's just the fact of it. There's a heaven and there's a hell. And if you reject Jesus, you're going to be destroyed. But that's why there's also verses 13 and 14. You have to choose. Which one are you? Are you the servant that's eating? Are you the one that's hungry? Are you the servant that's drinking? Are you the one that's thirsty? Are you the servant that's rejoicing? Are you the one that's shamed? Are you the servant singing for joy of heart? Are you the one crying sorrow of heart? You see, it is black and white. You're either saved or you're not saved. You're either a servant of God or you're not a servant of God. If you're a servant of God, he has promised you in verses 13 and 14, you will be eat, you will drink, you will be rejoicing, and you will be singing. Why? Because in John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come to give you life and give you life more abundantly. When you have abundant life through Christ... You're going to be rejoicing. But if you choose to reject that abundant life, well, you're going to be hungry, you're going to be thirsty, you're going to be ashamed, and you're going to be sorrowful. I mean, look at how black and white is this. Look at the world. You see what happens when you're born again and saved. I'm not saying the world is all rose gardens and petals, but God's blessing is on you and he takes care of you. If you reject the Lord, you're just asking for hurt. There's been so many times in life where someone's come to me and they've said, what is going on in my life? Why do these things keep happening again to me again and again and again? I think of this passage. If you're not the servant of the Lord, you're going to spend your whole life being thirsty. If you're not the servant of the Lord, you're going to spend your whole life being shamed and being hungry, seeking something more in life. God makes it pretty clear here in verse 13. And we have to decide. And he's telling Israel, you have to decide which one you want to be. And when you decide which one you want to be, then we can talk about the rest. Because we should stop right now and really say the rest of 65 and 66 really doesn't matter in the whole scheme of things if we don't understand the importance of what God is saying here in verses 13 through 16. is either you're saved or you're not saved. That's what it all comes down to. You're either a servant of the Lord or you're not a servant of the Lord. And I would hope that if you're coming here, and I hope that you're hearing this, I hope that you have that relationship with Jesus Christ. But at the same time, too, if you are saved, you probably know people that aren't saved. And you could probably look at verses 13 and 14 and say, you know what? They are hungry. They are thirsty. They are shamed. They are sorrowful. What's the answer? The answer is to give them Jesus. Because that's what it comes down to. Because if they choose to reject Christ... 
they're bringing judgment on themselves because God is a just God. But part of the beauty of this also is if you accept the Lord, you're not only the servant, but you also get the rest of 65 and 66. And before we jump into the rest of 65 and 66, this is the ice cream dessert at the end. We have to make sure we understand what it means to be a servant or not be a servant of the Lord. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about that before we move on? Okay, because this is how it ends. Look at verse 17 now, 65. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. See, this is how it all comes to. Is if you're a servant and serving the Lord, you get to enjoy this blessing. And this is what he's trying to tell Israel. Is Israel, I'm going to do something big here. I'm going to do something amazing. Do you want to be a part of it? You have to decide. Now, from verse 17 on, the way I look at this is this is almost a reboot. If you have a computer at home and sometimes your computer is just acting up and it's really funky, what's one of the things you do? You just unplug it and you start over from scratch, reboot it up. Well, the earth really has screwed things up. We brought sin into this world and this world that we live in is a sinful, fallen world. It is. It's a horrible place. And it's always funny when I run into somebody who is saved and they talk about you know, loving this place and wanting to be here forever. I tell you right now, if Jesus wants to return right this second, I'm totally fine with that. You know, I want to see more people get saved, and I would love to see loved ones, friends, and neighbors get saved. But at the same time, too, I'll be honest, there's a little bit of selfishness. I'm ready to be done with a lot of this stuff in the world. And I'm totally ready for the new heaven and new earth. Let's reboot the whole system because it's not working out right now. And so what God is saying is, I'm not dumb. He goes, I've noticed it. This world is a fallen place. And any time I run into somebody who talks about how could a God of love allow this or allow that, you've got to remember this is not what God intended from the beginning. We were supposed to be back in the Garden of Eden. That's what he intended. The Garden of Eden was the picture-perfect place, and that's where it's supposed to be. And so what he says is, I have to start from the beginning again. And as you go through from verse 17 on, once again, this is that fancy word, dual prophecy, dual fulfillment. As you go through this, he's talking about eternity, but he's also talking about the millennial reign of Christ. And real quick about the millennial reign of Christ, and I know a lot of you know this, this is a literal 1,000-year rule of Jesus on earth. The next event to happen is the rapture. The rapture is where believers are taken out. After the rapture happens, we have the seven-year tribulation where the Antichrist comes into the scene, Seven-year tribulation, it's a book of Revelation in action. At the end of the revelation, excuse me, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns in the second coming of Christ, and then he sets up a literal kingdom on this world for a thousand years. He literally will reign, and this is what he's talking about. Is I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Now, in Revelation 21, this verse is requoted to talk about a literal eternity, new heaven and new earth. But in this passage of Isaiah, he's also talking about, I'm creating a new heaven and new earth, meaning I'm going to rule and reign, so it's going to feel like a new heaven and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered or come to mind. If you're born in the millennial reign, you're not going to even have a picture of what the world was like before. Because in the millennial reign, there's not going to be this sickness that we have. In the millennial reign, there's not going to be this war, this fighting. And we're going to get to all this. I'm getting ahead of myself. But you're not even going to remember it. Plus the blessing of heaven... I've had people come up to me and say, in heaven, am I going to remember stuff? I don't want to remember a lot of stuff that happens on this earth. And so therefore, in heaven, I don't think we're going to have a lot of the memories that we have now. Now, hear me out. When we get to heaven, 
We're going to know each other. The Bible says we'll be known now as we are now known. So when we get to heaven, we're going to recognize each other. And I think we're going to have those memories of, hey, that we served the Lord together at Harvest Fellowship in Hamler, Ohio. Hey, do you remember that time that I got a chance to share Christ with you and accept it? Or, hey, do you remember the time that you shared the Lord with me? We're going to remember that. But we're not going to remember, hey, you remember Joe that blatantly rejected Jesus? Now he's in hell forever and ever. No, we're not going to be focusing on those things. We're going to be focusing on the good of heaven and of Jesus and that relationship with that. And that's part of the beauty of this, is the Bible says there's no more tears in heaven. And part of the beauty of things becoming new is we get to focus just on who Jesus is. So, we're not going to remember that stuff. Millennial reign is going to be so good. What's going to be happening during millennial reign that's so good? First, what you have in verses 18 and 19 is joy. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as rejoicing in her people with joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in here, nor the voice of crying. Now, you know that has to be a prophecy. Because Jerusalem is not known for joy. Jerusalem is not the happy place, most pleasant place to live. So for this to happen, something has to change. Jerusalem will be joyful. Because Christ is ruling and reigning. Now, can you imagine, verse 19, the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her? Do you stop and think of how much sadness is in your life right now? I mean, seriously, there's physical pains that we all struggle with. There's unsafe friends and loved ones. We get hurt. We get offended. The Bible says offenses will come. It's a fact that either I'm going to offend you or you're going to offend me. Our life is full of so much pain and sorrow. Can you imagine when Jesus is ruling and reigning that that's all gone? Boy, what a blessing that will be. Look at the rest of it here. Verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For even the child should die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. See, what it's saying is, during the millennial reign, that if someone would die at the age of 100, they're going to say, 100? Boy, he was so young. Now imagine that. It's kind of funny, I hear people want about living for a long time. Anybody I've ever met that is saved, and they're usually in their 90s or something, they, they don't want to keep living. The body has only so many miles it can take, and people generally start saying, I'm ready to go home. The idea of living to 100 does not interest me in any way whatsoever. It doesn't. But you know, during the millennial reign, the curse is not lifted. The curse is reversed. Imagine health. Imagine that, not having that disease and that sickness, that a hundred years old, you're still considered a youth in that sense of your body. What a beautiful picture that is. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. You know, Dawn and I built a house a few years ago. So we built a house, and we'll probably get to live in that house for, you know, maybe 40 years. And somebody else will take care of that. Well, they're saying in the millennial reign, as you build a house, enjoy it for the next thousand. So make sure you like what you build. You know, this idea here of vineyards. You know, if you really want a nice vineyard, it takes time to produce that crop and to take care of it. point is they're going to plant it and be able to enjoy it. Because you have this life expectancy. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. Long and sturdy. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. 
Being a parent is a wonderful blessing. It's also a whole lot of work. And I know a lot of you tonight could say some of the greatest heartache you've ever had in your life is when your kids have made choices that you didn't want them to make. Can you imagine verse 23? Bringing forth children will no longer be in trouble. But the blessing of what it can be of family and offspring, etc. That's the way it's supposed to be. See, this is the point. God is trying to say here, for this thousand years that I'm a rule and reign, He's trying to say, see, this is how it was supposed to be. We all got fooled by the snake and the fruit and the tree and we fell. He goes, this is what it's supposed to be like. This is what I wanted. This is what I intended. And for 1,000 years, I will rule and reign and show you the way it is supposed to be. Now, sad part is we know how this ends and there's a rebellion at the end of this 1,000 years. But who in their right mind would not like this? And this is all the physical aspects. Joy, peace, etc. Look at the spiritual aspects. Verse 24, shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Can you imagine having that type of relationship with Jesus? That as you're reading through the book of John, you got a question. I'm just going to run up to the temple real quick and ask Jesus. Or can you imagine Jesus himself saying, hey, I'm teaching through John tonight. If you want to come up to the temple, I'll tell you what it all means. That's what's going to happen. The book of Isaiah has already said that Jesus is going to be leading the teaching in the temple. How amazing is that? They had access to God the Father. See, when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, what is he always doing? Casting out demons, healing the sick, fighting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Poor Jesus, even his first time on earth, couldn't really enjoy it. Can you imagine a thousand-year rule and reign with Christ where we get to really see what it's like to have a relationship with Christ? And Jesus. I mean, what an amazing thing that is. And here's one of my biggest pet peeves in the Bible, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. It does not say in the Bible the lion lays down with the lamb. I know that's not a big deal to a lot of you, but for me that's always been a big deal. The wolf and the lamb feed together in verse 25. The lion and the ox are together. If you say lion and lamb, what you're really saying is, hey, I'm not saved. So don't say lion and lamb. Because now you know your Bible. Isaiah 65, 25. The wolf and the lamb lay down together. Sorry, pet peeve. Now, the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. I've shared you with you this before. And when I tell a story, I think it's cute because it's my kids. You guys probably don't think it's cute. We talk about this verse a lot at my house because this idea of during the millennial reign of animals not longer being a threat. We call it a snapping turtle. I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to waste time telling you this story. I was coming home. And there was a snapping turtle out in the middle of the road, about a mile from our house. So caught the snapping turtle. Now, it was easy to tell what it was. Half of its shell was kind of broke and healed up, but it was tagged. And so it was easy to tell what it is. So I caught the snapping turtle, brought it home to our boys. Boys love snapping turtles. Stuck it in our ditch. Two weeks later, the same snapping turtle is in the same spot in the road, about a mile down the road again. Same one because I know it's tagged. So I caught it again and bring it home, show the boys again. Dawn says, why are you doing this? It took two weeks for the thing to get a mile down the road. <laughs> Obviously, it wants to be in that spot, and I keep picking it up and taking it back home. Long story short is we're playing with the snapping turtle, and what do you do as boys with snapping turtles? Just stick things in its mouth so it can snap. The boys can't get near it. It'll snap you. Now, the dog gets near it. What happens to the dog? It gets snapped. So, 
Megan, it's just a dog. <laughs> but point is, how many rules and stuff do you have? You go to the zoo to look at animals, right? From 100 yards away through glass. Because you can't go near the tigers. But yet, millennial reign, that's gone. The curse is reversed in that sense. You want to go grab a lion and rub his belly on the floor? You go ahead and go do that. You want to go pick up a rattler snake? It's not going to hurt you. This is the way that God originally intended. The nations and the nature is not cursed. This is the way God wanted it. And how is he allowed to do that? Because Isaiah 66, verse 1, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. It's my planet. This is what I want to do. Well, God, if it's your planet, why are you allowing these things to happen? God says, I'm allowing these things to happen because you chose a path of sin 6,000 years ago, and I'm a just God, and there's consequences for your actions. And that's the way it is. So when we want to curse God for our situations in this world, God says, I didn't want this. When I see those reports on TV of horrible, tragic accidents, God says, this is not what I intended. That's not what I intended. I didn't intend for the tornadoes and the hurricanes and the volcanoes to be a threat. I didn't intend for any of that. That's a cursed fallen world that does that type of stuff. Isn't it amazing how in the insurance industry we have those phrases, acts of God? It's not what God wants. He has no joy in that. That's the cursed fallen world. And now he says in verse 1, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. He says, it's my choice, it's my game, it's my rules. So if you want to be on the winning side, look at verse 2. For all these things my hand is made, and all these things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, who trembles at my word. You want to be in God's good grace and God's good favors. What is he looking for? He's looking for, in verse 2, a humbleness in your spirit and somebody who has a heart for the word of God. Isn't that simple? You want to please God? Be humble. Realize it's all him and not you. Realize you're just here as a servant to serve him. There's a humbleness in that where you just simply say, Lord, it's not my life, it's not my choice, it's not my decisions, it is your life, and I humbly commit myself to you. God says, that's somebody I can work with. God can't work with pride. Number two, trembles at my word. He goes on here for a while now, and he says, a servant of mine will love my word. Because why? God says, I honor my word above my name, the Bible says in Psalm 139. So he says, my word, a, a follower of God will want his word and want to devour it and will want to eat it. Because we tremble at that because we realize that's how God speaks to us is through his word. So quick application point here. Do I have that contrite spirit? Am I humble and saying, Lord, it's all you, it's not me? Number two, Lord, do I have that desire for your word? If you don't have that desire for his word, pray for that. Lord, I want to desire your word. Lord, I want to go deeper in you. And, and you, to be quite honest, let go of the excuses and say, Lord, I want to go deeper in you in all ways and all things. We have to pick up the pace here a little bit because see what you have in verse 3? He says, you don't have a relationship with me. He who kills a bull as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers grain offering as he offers swine's blood. He's basically saying it means nothing to you. You sacrifice a bull, yeah, you go kill a man just the same way. It doesn't matter to you. You're going to sacrifice a lamb for sin, yeah, you go snap a dog's neck. It makes no difference to you. Now, I, I don't. when I say this point, I don't mean to pick on any nationality and I don't need to pick on any religion, but um, the World Cup's been on, and I don't know if you know this, I love soccer. I really do, no joke. I love soccer and I love watching the World Cup. You watch certain nations, and these certain nations that generally have a very religious background, they're, they're kissing the cross and signs of the cross 
left and right and everything. I mean, I like watching baseball and people before every pitch, battle will back out, do the sign of the cross, come back in. Now, I don't know this guy's heart. He may really at that moment be praying for the salvation of the 60,000 people in attendance at that ballpark. I don't know. But what happens is a lot of the things we do become very religious and not a relationship. And what he's saying here in verse 3 is this is all religion. Yeah, you're sacrificing bulls. You're sacrificing lambs. You're doing burnt offerings. You're doing everything you're supposed to do, but your heart is not in it. And you know what? The same thing happens today. People come to church, their heart's not in it. People will read their little daily devotional, their heart's not in it. People will have their little prayer time, their heart's not in it. They jump through those religious hoops. So what he says in verse 4 is, excuse me, into verse 3, just as they have chosen their own ways. Key verse of tonight. They chose what they wanted to do, and their soul delights in their abominations. They have chosen a path of rejection of God and of sin. So therefore, verse 4, so I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. God says, because you chose to reject me, this is the punishment that comes. So when I hear somebody talks about mean, nasty God, and how could he send anybody to hell, God doesn't send people to hell. They choose to reject Jesus and go there. When I look at verse 3, they chose abominations, so therefore they chose against God. Look at the end of verse 4. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. God says, I'm a just God. I'm a fair God. When you reject me, punishment comes. It comes. And that's why he says, verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you tremble at his word. He goes, listen to me. Listen to me. Now, we don't have a lot of time here, so I'm going to do this last section really quick. But what you have from verses 7 through 16, you have all the prophecy in the Bible in 10 minutes, in 10 verses. And we're going to do it in one minute. Because look at this. He sums it up. He's at the end now. This is the end of Isaiah. He's going to sum everything up here in these next 10 verses of everything we need to know about prophecy. Verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Now, I'm going through this quickly, so if you lose me, if I lose you, I should say, I will definitely fill you in later here. She is Israel. She was in labor, but before she was in labor, she gave birth, and she gave birth to a male child. Who's the male child? Verse 7. That's Jesus. Now, what does it mean that she gave birth before she was in labor? If you remember when Jesus talked in Matthew 24, what did he call the great tribulation for Israel? Labor. So he says, you have a labor time coming. Verse 8, who has heard such things? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? So he's saying, is this, is this judgment going to be a one-day thing? No, it's a tribulation. It's a seven-year period. Shall a nation be born at once? He says, is that possible? Isn't that funny? A nation was born at once. 1948. Israel was born in one day as a nation. Talk about fulfillment of prophecy. Can a nation be born at once? Well, that's ridiculous. That can't happen. It happened in May of 1948. A nation was born at once. If you go on Israel's website, Israel, and this is not a Christian website, if you go on Israel's website, the nation of Israel, this is the verse they quote. They quote this right out of Isaiah, that a nation shall be born at once. They even see a fulfillment right there. For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to children. See, now what he's saying is, follow me here, verse 7, you had a child 
before you were in labor. That was Jesus. He came before the labor pains. The labor pains are the tribulation. He says, now that you're in labor, verse 8, you will give birth to children. What happens during the tribulation? Israel finally opens their eyes to who Jesus is. And so their eyes are open during the labor of the tribulation. So therefore, Zion, Israel, gives birth. They finally realize that Jesus was their Savior and their Messiah. So they had a child before their labor in Jesus. They're born in one day as a nation. And then, while in labor, they finally give birth to children. They finally come together and they get it. Israel is reborn during the tribulation as a spiritual child of Jesus. So what happens now? Verse 10, we rejoice. Verse 10, 11, we have comfort. Verse 12, we have peace. Verse 13, we have more comfort. Verse 14, we have more rejoicing. Verse 15, we have judgment. See, when Israel becomes the nation, and spiritually the way they're supposed to, there's rejoicing, there's comfort, it finally comes together. Well, now in verse 15, you're at the end of the tribulation period. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh. All the slain of the Lord shall be many. That's the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. So what you have in verses 7 through 16 is all the prophecy of the birth of Jesus on in 10 verses. And it's all happened. Where are we at right now? We're at right about halfway through verse 8. A nation shall be born at once, if you're keeping track in your timeline. So we have the rest of 8 to happen through 16. Israel's born spiritually, so therefore they rejoice, their comfort, there's excitement, but verses 15 and 16, there is judgment that's going to come. And we're really running late here on time, so last point that needs to be shared with this is very, very simple. And this great book of comfort and rejoicing, you would think that he'd end on a high note. Well, look at the end, verse 24. They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men, who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. They shall all be an abhorrence to all flesh. This verse Jesus quotes three times in the New Testament and he's talking about hell. What he says here to end is very simple. He says judgment is coming. And that judgment is coming. If you choose to reject, there is going to be a hell fire for you. Now, he has just spent 66 previous chapters saying, judgment's coming, but I love you. But he wants us to know at the end of verse 24, judgment is coming. And if you look here in these last couple chapters, that's the point he's trying to get across. He says, I love you, but part of love is I have to tell you, judgment is coming. And this is what he decides to end with. And this is the verse that Jesus quoted three times in the New Testament to say, there is a hell that is going to come and it is going to happen. Now, don't let this last verse make you forget about the love, grace, and mercy of the Lord that we've covered after chapter, after chapter, after chapter. But the point that he wants to end with with this amazing book is judgment will come, and we have to be prepared. We either saved in Christ or we're rejecting it, and therefore judgment comes. That's how the book of Isaiah ends. And I know we're a little late here, but does anybody have any quick questions, comments? Yeah, Ryan. Well... What happened was in Old Testament times, excuse me, in New Testament times, um, they had this place here that was uh, a Gehenna, and it was basically as a trash heap where they threw stuff, and it was a perpetual fire that was constantly going on and on and on again. And there was this constant garbage there that was getting burned. So part of the analogy I think that's going on here is hell is this idea of this constant torment 
of where there is this fire that's not quenched, but the worm does not die, meaning this torture that goes on in this garbage heap of sin that is there again and again and again. And the worm not dying carries this connotation of an unquenchable fire. Because if you think of a worm and garbage and fire, um, that worm's not going to make it. But yet, there's this idea of hell, is there's this unquenchable fire that goes on and on, but yet we're never fully consumed. That's part of the hell part of it. I mean, if hell was literally, okay, I'm going to throw you in the fire, and you're dead, you're done, and you're gone in seconds, and you cease to exist, okay, hell is a perpetual, never-ending, worm-does-not-die, unquenchable fire torture. But you have to remember, and I always have to throw this point out there, hell was created for the fallen angels. Someone usually says, well, once again, how could a God of love do that? God created hell for Satan and the fallen angels to be tortured and, and all of eternity for what they've done. He never intended for us to go there. We choose to reject it and go there. Carly. Okay. okay. Um, so, uh, after tribulation, um, are the ones that you know are having kids and stuff with Jesus on earth, are they, are they just Jewish? No, the people that go into the tribulation, excuse me, the people that go into the millennial reign, after the tribulation ends, according to Matthew 25, the world is divided into two groups, the sheep and the goats. The goats are those that are not saved, that made it through the tribulation. They are judged and sentenced to hell. The sheep are those that got saved during the tribulation, that made it through the seven-year tribulation, and those are the ones that get to go into uh, the millennial reign. So they could be Jewish in nature, they could be of any other nationality, but they got saved during the tribulation, and those are the ones that go into the millennial reign. Um, and, uh, so, you know, the 144,000? The 144,000 mentioned in the book of Revelation, and this, this term I use sounds very disrespectful, and I don't mean it at all disrespectful. They are what I call the super Jews. They are the ones that God raises up in uh, Revelation 7, and he raises up 144,000 Jewish witnesses for the tribulation period to go out there and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these are a special group of people that have a special calling, anointing, and blessing on them that are used during the tribulation period to spread the gospel. So... Yeah, Megan. Um, you said God created hell for Satan and his fallen angels. Mm-hmm. So when was hell created? When was hell created? I'm getting a lot of feedback here. Sorry, I'm trying to find a uh, point to get out of that. Um, when was hell created? Oh, I would assume that hell was created during the initial six days of creation. That's what I would assume, yeah. But, you know, part of the fallen world, too, and we're... Let me talk to you about that one-on-one, because let me show you that verse in First Peter here, because I know I'm seeing um, the, um, the uh, teachers come up and look in the window, <laughs> wondering, wondering when I'm going to be done, so that way you guys can pick up your blessed little saints. Um, <laughs> let me grab you afterwards, because I want to fill you in on, on more of that there, so we can talk about that a little bit more. Anybody else got any other quick questions, comments here before we close up? All right, thanks for sticking around a little bit later tonight, Megan. I will grab you afterwards here, and we'll talk about that. Let's pray real quick. Lord, we come to you now, and thank you for just the time. And uh, thank you for the wonderful study in Isaiah, Lord. Um, you know, to you be the glory on that. And I, Lord, I just pray that we'd all walk away from this wanting to be your servants, wanting to go deeper in you, but, Lord, at the same time, too, seeing the pain that our sin causes. And just, Lord, we for, ask for forgiveness for that. We want to be your servants. We want to be alive and active for you. 
And Lord, we want to serve you with everything we have. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God